This morning our sermon text is Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. These are the words of God. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe, that you may live and multiply, and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these forty years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you to know that a man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these forty years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. Our gracious Heavenly Father, by the Holy Spirit, Lord, bring forth your word to us and minister to us through it. Give us understanding, give us conviction. Give us faith, give us love for your word, and give us, Lord, strength to obey you and and to imitate you and your parenting of your children, that we may do so to the children you have entrusted to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been looking at biblical parenting. Last week we saw that the first thing that God did in terms of raising the children of Israel once he had brought them out of Egypt, was to set up a household, a godly environment with godly rules to train up his children to godly maturity. And we looked at three features of that household, three main features. The first was God's goal, which was to train up his children to have hearts of faith, love, and wisdom. And oftentimes today we mistake God's purposes in these what I'm calling household rules. Elsewhere you'll see it being called the law of Moses. And a lot of times today we think that the law of Moses was something that was angry and repressive and was essentially a, a, a wrong way, a dead end road, sending people down the way of trying to earn their salvation. It was a cruel taskmaster. You have to remember to whom was the law of Moses given. To the people whom God has already redeemed and brought out of Egypt by the blood of the Passover lamb. The law had nothing to do with Israel's salvation. That was by the blood of the Passover lamb. The law is given to a people who have already been delivered by the blood of the Passover lamb. And what is the law teaching them? Number one, faith keeping faith in that Passover lamb, who is the Lord Jesus Christ to come. All of the sacrifices were pointing forward to Christ. So faith in Christ, who is the one Savior. The other thing is what Jesus tells us that the law of Moses was about. Matthew chapter 22. He says, all the law and all the prophets, which is a way of saying the entire Old Testament was about two great affirmative personal relational love commands. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He says on those two 
hung everything in the law. We need to accept Jesus' divine interpretation. So the law is given to a people who have been redeemed, not by their own works, but by the blood of the Passover lamb. It has been given to them to train them to continue in that faith and to learn what it means to walk with God in love, the one who has loved them and delivered them. And what does it mean to love one another? That's what it was really about. That's what how God's household rules were about, to train his children up to have hearts of faith, love, and wisdom. The second main feature we looked at last week was God's method, which was essentially the immersion method. God immersed his children in the law of faith, love, and wisdom in order to take that law from outside them and bring it inside them so that it would govern their hearts and their minds. And over time, they would not only heed it, but they would love it. And third, we looked at the overall atmosphere of God's household. Sometimes it's easy to miss because God's children, when he first brought them out of Egypt, so many of their responses, they don't understand what's going on. They have not learned to fully trust the Lord their God. There's a lot of commotion there. But what was the overall atmosphere of God's household? It was gratitude and Joy. The entire calendar, their yearly calendar, was governed by a series of feasts. And what are feasts about? Rejoicing, gratitude, joy. God commanded all to rejoice. Even the weekly Sabbath is about what Nehemiah uh, chapter 8 says. It's about eating the fat, eating the good stuff, the good steaks, the good meat, and drinking the sweet, the good stuff. And having people over and rejoicing before the Lord, that's the overall atmosphere that God was cultivating. So we looked at those three last week. This week, I want to look at a fourth key feature of God's household, and that is specifically, what was God doing through these household rules that he adopted? I want to look at these household rules. I want to look at how carefully God thought about these and how strategic they were. I want us to see how extremely wise these household rules are and how they were a major training tool for the benefit of God's children. So what were the main features that made God's household rules so wise that they were a major tool in the training of his children. Well, there's many features we could look at, but this morning I want to focus on four. Number one, God's household rules were proactive, not reactive. God's household rules were proactive, not reactive. Whether it was, you shall have no other gods before me, or you shall not be partial to the poor or to the mighty, or you shall not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. God's household rules imposed affirmative, ongoing responsibilities that constantly required God's children to put faith, love, and wisdom into action. 
God was continually putting the law of faith, hope, and wisdom in his children's mouths and also requiring it to be enacted by their feet and their fingertips. That was God's way of taking that law from outside and bringing it inside, making it a part of them so that over time they not only uh, heed it, they embrace it, they love it, which is what true strength is. Now, contrast what God did to what our temptation is as fallen parents. Our temptation is not to be proactive, but to be reactive. To simply come up with whatever, what I call spot rules. Rules that are on the moment, made in the moment, in reaction to some situation that only apply for that moment. Spot rules like, stop doing that. Be quiet. Don't touch that. Pick that up. Don't play with that. Don't do that in the house. Take that outside. And a thousand other things. Now, obviously, sometimes spot rules are necessary because we're dealing with the unexpected situation. The problem is when that's the vast majority of what our children have. Our children are always reacting to spot rules because as parents we tend to always be on our heels reacting to situations. And in that kind of environment, our kids really aren't learning that much. The main thing they're learning is how to get out of the line of fire. And we as parents tend to be frazzled in that kind of an environment. So there's a lack of the household environment that God was after with his household. There's a lack of peace. And so there's a lack of, uh, of an atmosphere of gratitude, and there's a lack of joy in the home. So the answer to this is for us to remember what is the, what's the consistent thread that runs all the way through biblical parenting. What's the heart of biblical parenting? It's simply imitating God, the Father, who is the perfect Father and the perfect parent. So let's take a look at God's household rules. What were some of the values that God was proactively teaching his children through these household rules? Well, again, there was a whole lot of values, but I'm going to give three examples. The first example is respect and obedience. And I put those two together because in the Bible, respect and obedience are two sides of the same coin. Obedience flows from respect. Deuteronomy 5.29 God says, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me. And the Hebrew word for fear there means a profound and deep and abiding respect or reverence for God. And look at the result of that fear or respect. And always keep my commandments. That's the result of a deep and abiding respect for the Lord. And then why does God want this? Why does he want this deep and abiding respect that leads to obedience? That it might be well with them. In other words, this is the wellspring of blessing. This is what God wants for his children. Look at Proverbs 1 verse 7. The fear of the Lord, that is, the profound, deep, and abiding reverence and respect for the Lord, is the beginning of knowledge. In other words, we can't truly know anything 
about life in this world without this starting point. Knowing the one who created the world, who created us in his image, who redeemed us through Christ Jesus, who gives us his spirit, who makes us his children, who has for us the inheritance of Christ to share with him, and who is training us up. And a big part of our training program is training the little ones he gave us. That's why he puts us right in the middle of it. It's a privilege. It's not a problem. So above all things, God wants his children to have a deep and profound respect for him that causes them to listen to him, to remember what he says, and to obey him. That's the doorway of all knowledge, wisdom, and blessing. But there's others besides simply parents that God, I mean, that God himself and parents, there's others beside that that God wants his children to respect. Um, So let's look at parents who are the primary one besides God himself. Indeed, what we see in the Bible is that respect and honor for parents is God's main way of teaching little ones to respect and honor him. Ephesians chapter 2, I mean Ephesians chapter 6 verse 2, Paul here is quoting Exodus chapter 20 verse 12, the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. Now in the Hebrew, honor here is the word for glory. It means to respect your father and mother by showing honor to them. And Paul says this is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Now, you know, this is, a, this is really interesting. The first command with promise. Think about that. The first command with promise is not, you shall have no other gods before me. As important as that is, this shows us something profound and deep about God. He doesn't make the first command with promise You shall have no other gods before me. He makes the first command with promise, honor your father and your mother. You see how deeply and and central he has made the role of parents, respect and honor for parents, in developing the respect and honor that he intends for himself. So Christian parents, when you require your children to respect honor and obey you, you are not being selfish. Not if you imitate God in the way that he goes about it. There is no more loving thing that you can do for your children if you're doing it in imitation of God because you see, this is God's own way of teaching him to respect, honor, and obey him. Even in the case of God's sinless son, Jesus, God placed him in the household and under the authority of godly yet fallen parents. Even in the case of God's only begotten son, this was the father's own way. He had no sin impulses to fight, but still he had to come up. Learning, He was a little child. He was a baby, just like the way we come up. And with God's perfect son, this was God's way for him as well. Moreover, parents, the converse of this is also true. 
you will not be able to teach your children to respect, honor, and obey God unless you teach them to respect, honor, and obey you. Because God would have it so. This is His own way. There's others that God, uh, in His household rules, requires us to respect and honor. Uh, Leaders, leaders in the workplace, leaders in church, leaders in society. There's a lot of different uh, commands on that. Paul sums them all up in Romans 13, verse 7. Render to all their due, fear to whom fear, that is, respect to whom respect, honor to whom honor. And this would even include people like, for example, the elderly. Leviticus 19.32, you shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God. You see, the honor to the elderly comes from the respect to God himself. I am the Lord. And so you see also here this principle. You see God requiring his children to make these things come out their fingertips and make it come out their feet. The principle we see here is that honor and respect that remains hidden in the heart is not really honor and respect. God says it's not enough if you have a special place in your heart for the elderly man or or lady. He says, get on your feet. Act it out. Let's see it. That's God's principle. You see, courtesy and manners are simply a behavioral language of honor. A behavioral language that can be seen and is understood by all. This is another thing, another value that God sought to teach his children through the household rules that he established And so we ought to follow his example. A second value that we see God teaching through his household rules is mercy and kindness. Again, these two go together, two sides of the same coin. Exodus chapter 22, verses 21 to 25. Here's some examples. You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him. In other words, here's somebody, a stranger... Uh, an alien, somebody who's not a citizen, not really established, that's somebody that you probably could mistreat and get away with it. That's the point. You could get away with it. God says you shall not mistreat a stranger or oppress him. That's an exercise in mercy and kindness. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. Again, you could probably get away with it. You shall not, God says. Verse 25, if you lend money to any of my people who are poor, you could probably get away with that. Happens all the time. You shall not charge him interest. Leviticus 19, verse 9, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap the corners, nor gather the gleanings. In other words, you come through one time and you reap it, but you don't come again to get the little ones that you missed. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. Now, you see how this is going to require some initiative and work by the poor and the stranger. It's not going to be a handout coming from the central government. It will require initiative on their part, 
But you see the mercy in the kindness that is built in here. Also, verse 14. How about this one? You shall not curse the deaf. That's somebody you can curse and get away with it because they can't hear you. God can hear you. You shall not curse the deaf. You shall not put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall refear your God. I am the Lord. A third value that I will point out, God's household rules taught, was stewardship. That is, being grateful for and taking care of the things that God has given us. Indeed, stewardship is a form of behavioral gratitude. There's a lot of parts of God's household rules that touch on this, but Jesus sums them all up in Luke 16, 10 through 12, when he says, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. He who is unjust in what is least is also unjust in much. Now, this is one of the many, many times that that Christ and God and the Scriptures take the way we teach and, and the way we think and just turns it completely upside down. We think, well, I may not be that faithful in the little things, but I'm really faithful in the big things. And we think it's not important for our kids to be faithful in the little things or be good steward with little things because they will be faithful and good steward in the little thing and the big things. And Jesus says that's not the way it works. The way your children will grow up to be faithful, grateful, good stewards of the big things is when they're good stewards of the little things. He said, if you've not been faithful and unrighteous mammon who will commit to your trust the true riches. If you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? In other words, don't be the person. It's great to want to own your own business. May God bless you. We need more Christian business owners, more entrepreneurs. But it's another thing to be the kind of guy who can't work for anybody else. They can only be the boss. Jesus says, if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, if you don't know what it's like in the fear of the Lord to make it your job to make somebody else successful, Jesus says, who will give you what is your own? So in some, we see that God's household rules were proactive, not reactive. And through them, God affirmatively required his children to put into action All of these very important values and virtues which are inherent to faith, love, and wisdom. The second feature of God's household rules I want to call to your attention this morning is that his household rules were intended to reveal the hearts of his children. God's household rules were intended to reveal the hearts of his children. Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. The Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart. God wanted to know, are my children in their hearts actively honoring and respecting me by remembering and doing what I have commanded? Or... Do they have a lack of regard and respect for me, which shows up by them failing to pay attention to what I say, to remember what I say, and to do what I say? 
Do my children, are they, do they say in their hearts what my only begotten son is going to say? Not my will, but God's will be done? Or do they in their hearts substitute their own judgment and their own will for mine? Do they run afoul of Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 7? Do they lean on their own understanding? Do they trust in their own perspective? You see, God wanted to know these things. Whatever was in the hearts of his children, God wanted it to come out so he could deal with it in love. He may need to deal with it by praising them. But it may be necessary for instruction, correction, discipline. So God did not have the disposition, parents, that we as fallen parents are tempted to have. It's easy for us to have, which is we don't really want to know what's in the hearts of our children. Because then I might have to get up off the couch. If I know what's in their hearts, and I'd rather not. It can require unpleasantness. It can require work. God wanted to know what was in the hearts of his children. And the way he set up his household rules was to reveal what was in their hearts. The third feature of God's household rules that I want to call to your attention this morning is that they gave God opportunity. um, I mean, it gave opportunity for God's children to either succeed or fail. His household rules gave opportunity for his children to either succeed or fail. Deuteronomy 8.2 again. The Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart and whether you would keep his commandments or not. God, through his household rules, was constantly creating forks in the road for his children. They either made a point of remembering what he said or they did not. They either obeyed what he said or they did not. Now, the reason in God uh, setting up his rules in this way is the same reason that a great teacher, number one, does an excellent job of teaching the material, but then gives his students a difficult test. The great teacher's purpose in giving that difficult test is not so that his students will fail and get in trouble, but so that his students can succeed and receive honor. But giving students or children an opportunity to succeed and receive honor necessarily means you're also giving them an opportunity to fail. So what would be an example, a simple example of removing the opportunity for a child to succeed or fail? It would be something like, let's say a simple command like, don't touch that, and then removing the item from their reach. Now they can neither succeed nor fail. Or it would be like, uh, pick up your toys, whereupon the parent immediately picks them up, him or herself. God did not coax his children in the moment so that they could only succeed, or at least they could not fail. If children only obey because they've been coaxed in the moment in puppet-like fashion, 
That's not the child succeeding. That's the parent pretending. In order to be able to truly succeed and to have the elation of receiving praise for it, a child must be able to fail also and to receive correction for it. So by closing off failure and correction, parents are also closing off success and praise. That's not what God did, and so we want to follow his example. And the fourth feature of God's household rules I want to call to your attention this morning is that they gave God constant opportunity to bless his children, whether through praise or instruction or correction or discipline or any combination thereof as warranted. Deuteronomy 8.5, again, Know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Why? Why does God do this? Verse 16, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. This is all for the children's blessings. So in sum, God's household rules were a tremendous tool to reveal faithfulness and respect and obedience, love, mercy, kindness, good stewardship in the hearts of his children, as well as to reveal any unbelief or rebellion or stubbornness or disobedience, unkindness, bad stewardship in the hearts of his children, so that God, in love, could provide whatever his children needed whether praise, correction, discipline, what have you, or any combination thereof, all so that God could be build within their hearts faith, love, and wisdom. So this is what we want to imitate in our household rules. Now let me give you a modern example. This comes from way back in the 1980s from Greg Harris, who was uh, very involved in the homeschooling movement back at that time. And you don't have to to keep these. These are simply provided as kind of an example of of a Christian man and his wife who worked at this and tried to make a good stab at it. So let's look at what they did. I think they made a pretty good stab at it. So the first of their household rules were very general, but they provided a backdrop for the rest. Here we go. We obey our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the number one household rule. We obey our Lord Jesus Christ. Second, we love, honor, and pray for one another. Third, we tell the truth. Fourth, we consider one another's interests ahead of our own. Now, those are very broad in general, but you can see how could we as Christians quibble with those? Those are great affirmative rules to have that apply all the time. But then their rules get more specific. They're going to start to press that inward. And they're going to impose affirmative ongoing duties. Here we go. We speak quietly and respectfully with one another. Now, this word quietly, I might modify this one a little bit. Because I think there's times when what you want, since you're cultivating uh, gratitude and the joy of the Lord, there's times when you want exuberance, right? And that's not always going to be quiet. 
So you might want to tweak this word quiet a little bit, but the idea of respectfully speaking respectfully to one another, that would certainly apply. We do not hurt one another with unkind words or deeds. When someone needs correction, we correct him in love. When someone is sorry, we forgive him. Now, I might tweak the word sorry there a little bit. Maybe you want to say, when someone asks for forgiveness or when someone is repentant, we forgive him. When someone is sad, we comfort him. When someone is happy, we rejoice with them. That comes straight from the Bible. Uh, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. When we have something nice to share, we share it. This is kind of a a different version of what I used to hear uh, my grandmother and grandparents uh, say. They would say, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. And then the rules get even more specific. And these are some good ones. When we have work to do, we do it without complaining. That's right out of the Bible. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. Philippians chapter 2. We take good care of everything God has given us. That's stewardship. We do not create unnecessary work for others. Moms, do I have an amen? We do not create unnecessary work for others. When we open something, we close it. When we turn something on, we turn it off. Dads, all those lights. When we take something out... We put it away. When we make a mess, we clean it up. When we do not know what to do, we ask. That is a great household rule. When we go out, we act just as if we were in this household. In other words, it's the same rules and standards that apply wherever we are. Whenever we disobey and forget any of the 21 rules of this household, we accept the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Notice the duty to remember throughout. And that's one thing you will find throughout God's household rules is the duty to remember. God is constantly saying, remember, do not forget. Remember, do not forget. The first step in respect and obedience is to remember In sum, if we imitate God's household rules, it will bring many benefits and blessings to our households and to our children. Number one, it saves a ton of work. It saves a ton of work. Number two, it produces peace and security. Now, think about it. This this Harris household had 21 rules. That can seem like a lot of rules. But compare that to all the spot rules you're continually having to come up with if you don't have proactive ongoing rules. You've got hundreds, thousands of spot rules coming out all the time. 21 is actually a far fewer number of rules, and they have the benefit of they apply every day. There's no new rules. There's no rules, no new ones. They're the same ones that were the yesterday and the day before. They apply all the time. They apply at home. They apply everywhere we go. You see how that really simplifies things and brings peace and security. Number three, they put proper expectations on your children. Number four, it gives your children an opportunity to succeed or fail. 
Number five, they reveal the heart. You want to know the heart of your child? That's what you're concerned with. Out of the heart come the issues of life. You want to know what's going on in the heart of your children so you can love them in imitation of your heavenly Father. Number six, they give you an opportunity to praise or correct or instruct your children as needed. Number seven, they give you parents an opportunity to demonstrate discipleship yourself because your kids are going to be able to see right in front of them every single day are you imitating the Father or not? You, you won't be able to hide that one from them. They're going to see that wide open. Are you imitating God or not? And remember, parents, you're not sowing perfection in your kids. That's not possible. You're not sowing perfection. What are you sowing? Genuine discipleship. Not perfect faith, but genuine faith. Not perfect love, we won't be able to get that, but genuine love. Not perfect wisdom, but genuine wisdom. And they see you growing in your walk with God every single day. Whatever you sow is what you're going to reap. Not only in yourself, but in your children. Finally, number eight. Wise rules like this in imitation of God prepare your children for life as a child of God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.